Welcome to New Orleans. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. I'm Tiffany Parks. That's Tiffany. She's over in Rome. Katie in New Orleans. New Orleans almost coming to a close here. In fact, this episode that we're going to play today might be our last one that's really centered on New Orleans proper. It's an interview with the famous, infamous on the show now, Dante, who's the one friend that I had moving to New Orleans. Being able to spend a significant amount of time with Dante has been one of my favorite things about living in New Orleans. And he also has the most incredible story, Tiffany, which I cannot wait for you to actually hear because his background and his story about how he came to be a magician and a musician is really one of the most astounding stories ever, which involves arrests and espionage and all sorts of fun, fun stuff. So I think you're really going to like it. I can't wait to hear I've heard a few tidbits, but I haven't heard the whole story. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And you know what? It's so funny, too, how I knew this story when I met him. I met him back when I was 23 years old. So a good, good long time ago was when I first met him. And my memory of this story even wasn't exactly right on the money. So it was interesting for me to revisit the whole thing as well. How does this relate to our larger topic of being an expat or a traveler, a seeker, or a journeyer? Uh, I think you'll see when you hear what his final message is about how he decided to craft his life after being arrested and all these other amazing things happened to him. We're going to kick that interview off. But before we do, I want to encourage you to remember your favorite hosts, <laughs> Tiffany and Katie, in this time of holiday giving. Now, this is a bit of an issue because we're not a nonprofit. We're kind of a no profit, really. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so we would we don't have this, you know, the standards that might be able to get you to write us off on your taxes or that thing. But you know, think of us as the uh, painting that you're buying or the CD. Do people buy CDs anymore? The CD <laughs> that you love to listen to, or Think of us as the watch that you were going to buy yourself, but you thought instead, you know, I've spent a lot of great time with Tiffany and Katie. I think I'm going to give them a little kickback this holiday season. Yeah, especially because we are really trying hard to kind of push this podcast to the next level. And that takes money. So any help that you guys can offer really does make a difference to us because we want to bring you guys the best quality shows that we can. And it's just uh, just the two of us and our trusty... <laughs> intern, unpaid intern, I should point out, Estrella. So we really could use all the help that you guys can um, can manage right now. And it doesn't matter how little it is. It's even if it's $5, it is genuinely appreciated and helpful to us. Yeah, we'd love to see more of you donating on a regular basis. We have two listeners, John and Terry, who regularly donate. They filled out the PayPal thing and they said, hey, I'm going to donate every single month. And when I'm trying to figure out how to pay for all the different things we have to pay for, I know that I can rely on John and Terry. And I would love if we had more people who are willing to make a commitment of like $5 a month or $10 a month to us. Because what what are we buying? I mean, everybody's like, oh, well, podcasts are free. But you know, they're not. No, they're not. Because you have to pay for the hosting and there's equipment. My recorder right now is actually currently about to kick the bucket. So I need to buy more equipment. There's all sorts of 
different apps and programs that you have to subscribe to to be able to market yourself effectively and to spread the word about the show. I mean, it's when it really comes down to it, it's sort of ridiculous. And you know what? <laughs> it would be really awesome one day in the future to have a paid assistant so poor Katie doesn't have to devote 99% of her waking hours to producing this show. <laughs> I know. It's all about sustainability, and that's the thing. So we'll leave it at that. But the fact of the matter is, is this is art. We are creating independent art and we hope that it's something that you love and that you're willing to support. And if the show isn't sustainable going forward, it will one day pass away. We also do need to make a living. Sadly. Anyway, boy, that made it sad. Tiffany just got a sad look on her face with the passing away comment. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> don't go there. But if you do enjoy the show, if you listen every week or, or regularly and you, you get something out of this show, then don't be shy. Give back if you can and you're willing to. So you can easily do that by visiting thebittersweetlife.net and clicking on the donate button, which is on the right-hand side of the screen. It'll take you to a PayPal page and everything will be easy from there. And if you don't want to go through PayPal for some reason, I've had a few people write to me and ask if they could send a check instead because they don't want to do online transactions. And if that's the case, feel free to send us an email and I will tell you where to send the check. And last thing, last thing, if you really feel like this year you're just a little bit too strapped and you can't, um, you can't spare any extra money, we totally understand that. If that's the case, I encourage you guys to um, support us in another way. Go to iTunes, give us a good review, give us a five-star rating, tell your friends about it, post us on social media. That's also really helpful. It helps people find the show. And at the end of the day, that's what that's the most important thing. Yeah, yeah. We've been having people uh, writing us testimonials lately, which has been exciting. So if you want to write a testimonial, feel free and we'll share it and we'll spread it across your network and ours. Uh, all right. Well, without further ado, because this story is hilarious and amazing, let's get to it. New Orleans, my friend Dante. Dante is a magician and a musician. The two hardest things for me to say back to back. Uh, thanks for doing an interview with me. Oh, sure. Of course. I just knew that if it were me listening, I would be curious about who this person is. And it's not like I've been talking about you left and right, but I did mention that part of the reason... I wanted, was drawn to come down here was because I wanted to be around you and your energy for a little while. So where to begin? Let's first tell the story about how I named you. What do you remember? What I remember basically is that one day you said to me, well, you don't seem like a Sean. And I was like, well, what do I seem like? And then I think you thought about it for a little bit and came back a few days later and said Dante and never went back. You never called me Sean ever again. Yeah, I guess I never really have. It's interesting. We were just in a grocery store and we ran into a guy that's in there buying his Twix candy bar or whatever. And uh, he called you Dante, which, you know, still for me is like a slightly, <laughs> slightly delightful thing. But, but in reality, how much are you actually living by that name at this point? Well, I always introduce myself as Sean in day-to-day -day life because that is my name. But probably more than half the people I know call me Dante. You know, I, I use the name Dante for work, but it just kind of ballooned. And now even my friends call me Dante. Now it's actually kind of confusing because now when I meet new people, like a friend of a friend, I don't know, 
I can't remember who calls me Sean and who calls me Dante. So it's actually really confusing, actually, to be perfectly honest. (laughs) And for you as a performer who meets so many people, so so many people know you, of you, and then you don't actually know them, it's equally extra a problem. So, Yep, but it's it's also my terrible facial blindness problem. I was asking him about that earlier today, too, and we have discovered that he does recognize me, so that's good. (laughs) (laughs) I first met you 17 years ago and it's not like i've been around you a ton since then but i've i've stopped by here and there but there is always that i don't know i'd like to think that i'm a very unique looking individual and i like and i know that you're a very unique individual looking individual and so i figured you would recognize me but you never know you never know i I recognize you of course but really i'm just like your what would i be uh if i gave birth to dante so i'm kind of like your mom in a way (laughs) (laughs) thanks mom the mom of your new personality (laughs) so one of the things that we were talking about the other night that i thought was so interesting was something that we've talked about when i was living over in europe which was the fact that you don't ask people around here what they do for a living Yes, it's true. The other day when we were at a party and you asked some people, so what do you guys do or what do you do? And it's funny, I I guess I wasn't, you know, sometimes you're not aware of how unusual a question is until you hear it asked. But yes, here in New Orleans, nobody gives a crap what you do for a living. They're, you know, they're more interested in, uh, well, as my friend said, uh, you know, it's not, what do you do? Instead, they would ask, what are you doing for Halloween? That sort of mindset, I guess, is people are more interested about what you're doing for fun and for the joy of life or what you're into artistically or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. But in a way, isn't that isn't asking you what you do is in a way asking what do you do for the joy of life? What are you into artistically? Because so many people here are artists. That is true. That is true. I don't know. Personally, I actually kind of hate talking about that in for myself uh, because I don't want to sound like I'm bragging like somebody else is a day laborer and I get to do magic tricks and play music like it's almost pretentious to talk about it true but a bit people would be curious about it or is it more like a show pony where if you say that you can do magic and you can do music that people are like oh we'll do something there is some of that as a magician where you do get that especially outside of this city oh you're you're a trick monkey do a trick for me come on trick boy come on i've really resisted the urge to do that while i've been here and in my mind i'm like you know there is a deck of cards in that drawer over there (laughs) (laughs) so you're saying that it it can't pass as a question like i would have to just say uh but i mean because you guys all know each other as an artist too that's the interesting thing a lot of people I don't know what they do. Many people, I don't know what they do for a living that are friends. I, even the friends you were asking the other day, I was like, well, I'm not really sure. What they, you know, I'm, I, you know. You know, and I don't believe they answered. Like, no. I think they almost avoided the question, really. Well, it's such an awkward, and I think I jumped right in because I felt the awkwardness and I was like, okay, you're showing yourself as an out-of-towner because that is such a bizarre question in this town. That's just odd. I have not encountered that in the whole of the rest of the United States. Yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. You know, you go to, I I lived actually in Washington, D.C. for a month. And there, it's about as as far to the other side of that spectrum as you can possibly get. 
all they care about is what you're doing for a living. And it was really awful. Washington, D.C. is a really awful place. And when people asked you, did you find that they respected your answer or how did they, what was the reaction that you got from there? You know, honestly, I actually try to avoid the question myself because when you say you're a magician, then the the conversation suddenly gets turned about talking about me and I don't want, I'm, I, I, you know, it's boring to me to talk about me. I know. And yet we're going to do it for a while. So I'll, I'll make an exception for you. Okay. Okay. Would you be willing to tell the story about how you ended up being a magician in the first place? Because I'm sure that's how people, people must wonder. A lot of kids play with magic when they're kids, but they don't grow up and become magicians. They're still fairly rare, I would argue. Mm-hmm. Do you want to tell that story? If you want me to, I will. <laughs> well, why not? <laughs> well, I did do magic as a kid. Uh, that is true. I gave it up basically, uh, you know, I went away for school, you know, my freshman year, I still did a little magic, but then I stopped basically. What the heck was your degree in? This is another, maybe I don't know any of these things about you. (laughs) (laughs) You know, my degree is actually theater arts administration. And the reason why I picked that is because, you know, I did theater as a kid and I really enjoyed theater people. They're fun. You know, you get into a family feeling you know it's just their delight and so i thought well this could be a fun way you know i i I like being around these people what could i do to be around these people but not be a performer because and this is the really funny thing is it never not even a little tinge in the back of my mind that i ever consider being a performer growing up because uh well you can't do that our, our educational system, society is so set up that, of course, you can't be an artist, a performer. That's silly. And I was, you know, a, a reasonably good student. I had, could make lots of choices. This is why I picked this degree, but, you know, what a terrible choice uh, that would have been for me because I hate business. I despise it. I don't balance my checkbook. You know, I don't care about business. I, I, don't, I don't care. To answer your question, how did I become a magician? Well, I, at the time I was during college and stuff, I was doing a lot of political activist work, working on um, environmental or human right or peace issues, that sort of thing. And I was out in California working on the very first medical marijuana initiative in 1996. And uh, look at the fruits of my labor. <laughs> yeah, it really worked out for Washington <laughs> State where it's legal now. <laughs> and uh, yep, I started that. And uh, so talking to a lot of people every day about marijuana well you're bound to find some people that have marijuana and, <laughs> and uh, I ran into this guy he's like yeah we can get pounds for $400 like what pounds of marijuana for $400 I was like could I get one and so you know I was a kid and I sounded like fun to have a pound of marijuana <laughs> 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 and um so yeah i was just playing around and and i was uh but i was going to go back to visit my parents for christmas and i had this brilliant idea why don't i get six pounds and my friend in uh in new york was going to take half it off my hand for what i paid for all of it which was not a lot at 400 dollars a pound mm-hmm. and then i'd have three pounds for free yeah, it's, conceptually, it's a great idea. 
<laughs> Actually, that's a pretty stupid idea. Because what happened next? You know, I didn't, I didn't know that the police do random searches on Greyhound buses. And apparently this is common practice. You know, when you get off, you know, to Pete or whatever is when they do the secret search. And I was very uncareful. I was, at the time, you know, remember I was a political activist. So this was back in the time where you people smoked cigarettes in bars. So I would roll a joint, but put the tip of a cigarette at the end of the joint and just light it right up in the middle of the bar and just be as open as possible, just as a protest. You know what I mean? I mean, yeah. and to get high. I mean, let's be honest. <laughs> um, and, um, but yeah, no, no, nobody could tell where it's coming from. You look around, I didn't look nervous, you know. Um, shit, I've smoked weed in the inside the airport in the smoking section in uh, Iceland. Like, does it, you know. I, yeah, that's the youth for you right there. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Balls bigger than my head, yeah. yeah. Bigger than my brains, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, man. So at any rate, so I took no precautions. And just put the six pounds of weed in my bag with my name on it, like a total idiot. Dogs found my bag, found myself in jail, locked up. And I had to make that terrible call to my parents who thought they're going to be picking me up from the bus station for Christmas that, no, I won't be there. I just got caught with six pounds of weed. What was their reaction? Uh, I mean, I'm sure it wasn't joy joy and cheering but do you remember what they said i don't remember what they said but i broke their hearts yeah. and it was such a sad christmas for them and i mean it was it was pretty terrible mm-hmm. they didn't even know i smoked marijuana you know and you didn't know that they did <laughs> just kidding <laughs> do you get it <laughs> I, I, I are you on marijuana right now? <laughs> no. <laughs> you said they had no idea that I smoked marijuana. And I said, and you had no idea that they did. They I know they don't. It's it was a, a joke. joke. <laughs> <laughs> Work with me here. Okay. Let me, let me write the comedy. All right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> some jokes they learn, some they fall. <laughs> <laughs> at any rate <laughs> so you break their hearts yeah, yeah you're in jail hearts, yep. and uh, so I was incarcerated for a couple months and unbeknownst to me my father had been writing the, the, the DA in Mesa County Colorado that's right I was arrested in Colorado the first legal state in the nation so, unbeknownst to me, as I said, my dad had been writing a DA and got me moved to an in-house drug rehab. You know, it's basically a mental hospital, mm-hmm. um, which if you've ever seen One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, yes, it, the mental hospital is worse than jail. It was so horrible. But anyway, that's where I concocted my plan. Now, hang on. Let me interrupt one second before it will cliffhanger with your plan. Did your father get you moved there because he thought it would be better? Or did he get you moved there because he thought you had a drug problem? He got me moved there because, in his mind, clearly I had a serious drug problem. It was in the hospital where I concocted my grand plan. I was going to change my identity and 
run away forever. Sentencing was coming up because you have to await sentencing. Rich people, of course, can get out on bail, but you know, poor people usually sit in jail while they wait a sentence. You know, that's the system we have. But anyway, um, and by the way, I've got to say, it's a really eye-opening experience being in jail because I think people that have not been to jail think that jail is filled with a bunch of horrible people. And it's not really true. I mean, the jail I was in, at least, I'm sure there are some horrible people in jail, don't get me wrong. But the vast majority of the people in there, there was three major groups. Drug offenders, traffic violations, and domestic violence. And ironically, in the beginning, uh, when I first got in jail, after, after the first week or two, all the wife beaters are let out. Because that's, in the eyes of the law, is not considered a terrible crime, I guess. Or the women drop the charges. Yeah, whatever it is. I mean, there may be some of that going on, but I also think it's, it's just not seen as a, as serious a crime. But smoke a joint, now that's a serious crime. Oh my God, let's lock them away forever. So, and also the traffic fires, you know, people that had too many tickets, then they got picked up, they put them in jail. You know what I mean? Poor. Yep, yep. And the people that actually did bad things were not that many. Uh, at least, where, again, where I was at, you know, there probably was a few armed robbery people, whatever. There was one guy that the whole time I came in, it was a child molester or whatever, and whoa. Everyone, first of all, everyone knows what everyone is in for. I'm not sure how they know this, but they know it. I'm sure it's not the first question they ask. Like, what do you do for a living? (laughs) (laughs) And it's an awkward silence. (laughs) But no, like, uh, everyone was like, when the child molester came in, everyone wanted to beat that guy up. Yeah. Even among thieves, there is justice. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And a a morality. That's really interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. And it also it institutionalizes people. Am I going on on too much of a tangent? No. This gentleman I really enjoyed, really great guy, when he was like 14, he took the fall for something his brother and his brother's friends were doing because they were of age and, and they, they would have gone to jail for a long time. And he just decided to take the, the rap for them to, so they wouldn't be in trouble. It was a, they stole the car and burned it out or something like that. And when I met him, he was like 22 at the time. Um, and I was just a little older and the last time he was in, it was because he failed a, a P test for marijuana. That's why he got put back in. He feels more comfortable in jail than he does outside because that's been most of his life as an adult. He doesn't know how to function anymore in the outside world. And we as a society are taking this good person. He's a really sweet guy. I would invite him over to my house and introduce him to my family, you know, We've turned him into a criminal. It's such a tragedy. Yeah, and in a way, almost like a child, in the sense that when he gets out, he doesn't know what to do. Yep. Yeah, he doesn't know what to do, and all he can, you know, and, and who's going to hire him? He's a he's, he's a criminal. Well, and he has no work record at it. No, no work record. He doesn't. Yeah, he doesn't know how to function. So at any rate. So this, okay, this is all before you decide that you're going to change your identity and disappear. Yes. Back back to the. <laughs> Back to the the caper. Um, 
yeah, so I call a cab, break out of the hospital, call a cab, take her to the bus station, take the bus to New York City, get together with this friend of mine, my friend, old friend Jonah. He's kind of this, like, uh, he's an interesting character. And I asked if I could assume his identity. He's like, whoa, man, there'll be like two of me. <laughs> that sounds great. Now, was he the friend that was getting the other half of the marijuana? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, he was also incompetent, didn't it? You know, my friend Johnny was great. He was uh, also sort of unfunctional, but for different reasons. But yeah, interesting guy and a friend. And so I, I took his birth certificate and his social security number, went to New Jersey, got a non-driver ID. And so now I had a real ID in his birth certificate. Also, and I was going to take that to the passport office, but also I needed cash. If I'm going to run away, I need lots of cash. So I had this grand plan. You know, the one thing you learn in jail is how to become a better criminal. Because you, you learn what everyone's done wrong. We talk about our crimes. Like, oh, that's how you got busted? Well, shit, I'm not doing that. And it's also like networking. You know, it's kind of like in job markets. You get together and network. Even though I wasn't a drug dealer, I had never had a plan to be a drug dealer. I was just a kid playing. Well, I had the connections. I could buy pounds. I was buying the weed from the Mexican mafia that were bringing it over the border. Like, I was... The price per pound I was getting at was the same price that I remember one day I was uh, getting some weed and... uh, this guy was coming from Philadelphia. He's like, oh, we got to go meet this guy. The other guy was buying 200 pounds at the same price per pound as I was buying it. Like, that's where I was in the, in the hierarchy of, of distribution, you know? Mm-hmm. They also had cocaine. So I was going to get 100 pounds of marijuana, two kilos of cocaine. And I also met a guy that could get pounds of mushrooms. And I was going to do one massive drug deal. <laughs> <laughs> to fund my uh, my escape. On top of it, I had really good credit. You know, I had been paying off my student loan and a responsible citizen. So I had applied for all these credit cards. I was going to cash advance them all, all at once, get thousands there. Under which name? Uh, under my real, real identity. Okay. Because that's the identity I'm leaving. Right. Okay. So I was going to do credit card fraud and one massive drug deal. And I figured that I was, when I calculated it all, I was going to have about $50,000 in cash. So I'm in the passport office (laughs) with with my New Jersey ID, with my face and somebody else's name and social security number. And I was going to get my passport. And it would have been a legal passport with legal ID. Everything would have been legal, sort of, except for the fact that it's not me. Um... (laughs) And I saw this big poster that said falsification of a passport holds up to a a 20-year prison sentence and a quarter million dollar fine. And I started to think to myself, wait, what if something goes wrong? What if somewhere I make a mistake? I mean, I was so confident before and I got caught. What if I make a mistake? Then I would have my original charges plus the running away from the law, plus the falsification of a passport and my identity, plus 
this massive drug deal. Like, let's say I got busted doing that. It occurred to me, I would spend the rest of my life in prison if something goes wrong. And it also, I thought, well, what if 20 years from now I'm in Spain and, and I need to get a, a driver's license and it's technology is advanced that, you know, you have to fingerprint it and then it's all the information is, you know, shared among countries. You know, I don't know what the future is. Well, as it turned out, 9-11 happened and things did get a lot tighter. But I, you know, of course, I didn't know that at the time. But so there was too many unknowns. So I decided to step out of the line and go home and think. What I finally decided was, all right, this is too risky. I will go back for sentencing. But I make a promise to myself that I will never not be free another moment in my life. And I didn't know what that meant. At the time, I made myself that promise, but I just made myself that promise. So I did go back for sentencing. Luckily for me, although sadly for society, our judicial system is far from blind. Uh, you know, I'm white, college educated. My family showed up for the sentencing. And I also got lucky. The, the judge that was going to see my case ended up not seeing it because of, for whatever reason, in the replacement, my, my public defender said was the easiest person in the county for drug charges. So a stroke of luck. I didn't get prison. Instead, I got a four-year probation sentence, and I was sentenced to live with my parents to start with. And so I dodged a bullet. Mm -hmm. And so that summer, I'm home at my parents, and, you know, frankly, a little depressed. I mean, my life had fallen apart. And, and again, not to jump back, but ironically, that bus trip where I got caught with all that weed, I remember thinking to myself, wow, I, I almost can't believe how amazing my life is. I, I've been... You know, just had finished school a couple years before, and now I'd just been traveling around, living living the life. You know, almost my life was too good, too elitist, too wonderful, too easy. And then I found myself in jail. And I think about that a lot now, like, when I... Because I'm, I'm very thankful for my life, and I think... When I'm thinking, wow, it's amazing how wonderful my life is, I'm like, ooh, remember back then when I thought that? What if I'm going to get hit? I might be hit by a bus later today. Like, you know... Yeah, it's sort of that same thing where you think, you have that thought where you think, you know, it's been a long time since I've been ill. <laughs> you know, and then you have the worst cold three days later. Yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah. So during the summer is when I started to think about that promise I made myself about never not being free another moment in my life. And that's when I decided to become a street magician. Because if you promise that you'll never not be free again, you can't work for somebody. That's 40 plus hours a week that you don't have control over. I had to keep my promise to myself. So I decided to trick probation. I told him, I want to go back to school. I want to go to Brooklyn College. Of course, I just took one class. They didn't ask. <laughs> <laughs> Later tonight, somebody pounds on your door. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why we're using my stage name. <laughs> um, and uh, <laughs> uh, so I went, and I, at first, because it was winter, and, you know, I, I went back to New York in the fall, I decided to get a job at a magic shop. By the time s spring came, I was like, screw this. 
quit my job and just took the leap of faith and went out and struggled on the street. And boy, it was that first year it was it was pretty brutal, but free, very free. Well, it's, it's probably the single best decision I've ever made in my entire life. Well, and how many years did it take you to get to a place with magic where you felt like you were good enough to be out on the street? Well, the great thing about the street is you can totally suck and be good enough for the street because it's the street. <laughs> yeah. So immediately. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you must have had a trick or two by that point. Right? right. I did magic as a kid. So I pulled out my favorite tricks from a kid. You know, I did the cups and balls. I loved that trick when I was a kid. And I did a coin trick and I did a card trick. And my show started at about 10 or 12 minutes long. Um, by the time I left the street, it was 45 minutes long, which is a long street show. Most shows are 20 minutes. It's just hard to hold people that long. Yeah, I would think so. Yeah, yeah well, you have to be entertaining. Yeah, it was just a, a great experience because the street is... It's very unforgiving in the sense that it can be brutal, but it also teaches you a lot. It teaches you a lot how to be a performer. If you can hold an audience there for 45 minutes and not let them walk away, you've got a good show. And now, now that I work theaters and stuff, I'm so thankful for that time. It just taught me so much and about pacing and about levels and, and fluidity of the show. You know, it just taught me so much. Do you remember in that first year when you're out there and you say, it was a really hard it was a really hard time what do you remember of it like what was so hard not just the you know the crowd the hecklers or whatever that you deal with when you're performing in the street but well it's hard because it's hard to stop people and it's hard to hold them people are busy and and they owe you nothing you're on the street and it was so hard in fact i first started doing as i said it was in new york city and that first year I would go to work without bus fare to get home to force me to do a show. If I wanted to get home, I had to do a show. I, I don't know if I've mentioned the show or not, but that's how I met you. It's because I saw you performing on the street and I just decided that I needed to know you. <laughs> that's how incredible a magician he was. Um, <laughs> you were probably just bored. Yeah, it was, uh, yeah, I'm like, nobody else is hanging around this summer. Um, yeah, I mean, when you were temporarily in Seattle, I think you were just there for like four months or something yeah. like that, right? Yeah, for, for years, I would, I constantly traveled with the weather. I would or constantly travel with the summer, I guess I should say. Yeah, usually during the summer, I'd go north. Uh, later, I went to Europe as soon as I got off probation. Yeah. And during the cold months, being, you know, I've done New Orleans and Key West, I've, you know, I've done Australia and other places too. Yeah, you just always traveled. And so I, for years, I wasn't in one spot for more than like three months at a time. And was that lonely at all for you? No. I grew up in rural America where I couldn't see my closest neighbors. And my brother and sister were out of the house when I was in the seventh grade. So I spent a lot of time by myself. I'm, even though I think people might find it shocking that know me because I'm very friendly. I am an introvert. I like spending time with myself a lot. But also, when you're traveling and performing, it's so easy to meet people because I'm in the thick of it all the time. And so there's always new people to meet, which is a delight. And I think maybe part of that introversion is why you have the patience to develop all these skills. Yeah, so. yeah I think that's true. Magicians, 
Magicians, as a general rule, are a bunch of dorks, just like me. <laughs> <laughs> Can I ask you your opinion of all the other professional magicians that people would know about who you personally think is one of the most skilled that's performing today? Uh, well, my favorite magician recently passed, actually. His name was Tom Mollica. You can YouTube him. Very funny guy. Very funny. He actually has two different shows. He had a show for years in, in Atlanta called The Tom Foolery. His name is Tom Mollica, so Tom Foolery, that's a very clever name. And he did a comedy sleight of hand magic show. Then later, after he sold that, he developed a silent clown act. Not only is he my favorite, but he's also the kind of the closest to me of any magician I know. My one act is very much like one of his acts in style. I mean, I'm not saying it's in substance the same. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then we both do a silent clown act as well. But, you know, a lot of people do ask, like, oh, what do you think of uh, uh, David Blaine, for example? And I'll tell you, David Blaine did great things for magic because before David Blaine, magicians had a really bad reputation because it was all those, like, really cheesy dancing Vegas acts or, you know, the, the David Copperfield-esque acts, um, which, you know, they put some girl in a box and blow it up and, oh, she peers out of your butt. Perfect, you know. <laughs> stupid as hell, stupid as hell. But David Blaine made it cool again. And so I think all magicians owe him a thank you, I guess. I, I don't, you know. Yeah, that's interesting. So the one thing I, well, among many things that I didn't know about you back in Seattle and that you didn't know about yourself, as I pointed out the other day, was that you were going to become a trumpet player. 17 years ago, we would have never suspected that. Uh, you might have suspected it. I don't know. Maybe you were already fascinated with the trumpet. But how does this come about? I didn't. Uh, I, I, nobody's more surprised than me. I, that was not at all on my horizon. I had no idea I would get into music. Uh, how did that happen? Well, as the years went on, I started to spend more and more time in New Orleans. I just love this place. And this place has changed me in ways like I would be a different person today if I did not come to New Orleans. Yeah, I never played music before. I didn't dance before. I didn't costume before. You know, I'm just, I am the person I am today, thankfully, because of New Orleans. And so, yeah, I was just inspired by all the live music around me all the time and particularly fell in love with traditional jazz, jazz from, you know, the 1920s, uh, the beginning, you know, the jazz that started in New Orleans and went to the rest of the world. You become a trumpet player because you become obsessed with 1920s New Orleans jazz. Well, uh, actually, there's a step in between. So I was inspired by all this music, and I didn't know what instrument I wanted to play. I just knew I wanted to play music. And so, like a lot of people in this country, you think, oh, what instrument? Well, what about guitar? Oh, yeah. So I started playing guitar a little bit in, this, in that style, the traditional jazz style. And one day took it to a second line. And for your listeners that don't know what that is, it's a New Orleans parade. We, we do second lines for, for celebration. We do it for funerals. It's, it's just a real big part of our culture. And so I brought my guitar to a second line. And this band that was coming up behind the band I was playing with, I was just playing with a bunch of misfits, really. This incredible band came up. And this guy was blowing this trumpet and it just blew me away and I didn't know who it was at the time but later I've I've realized it was James Andrews which 
his actually his younger brother is more famous than him, I think, outside of the, the city. His, his younger bro brother is Trombone Shorty. Um, but he was amazing. And I'm like, damn, I don't want to play this stupid instrument. I want to play that. <laughs> Little did I know that I can practice my whole life and I will never be able to play as well as James Andrews. <laughs> if I known how hard it was, you know. Um, but that's what got me to switch. And I switched and never went back to guitar. Where is that poor, lonely guitar today? It, it's actually still in my house. Oh. Hasn't been played in years. So yeah, and I, you know, and stupidly, I never took any lessons. I was like, well, I'll just, I'll just hit keys until it sounds right. That's how else are you gonna play, right? So needless to say, actually, my claim to fame is uh, probably the worst working trumpet player in New Orleans. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> but I love your band. Uh, as people know, that we use a very, very small clip in the opening, New Orleans opening of the show. But I guess on your episode, I'm gonna have to end at least with one of your songs okay. for sure. But what is it about you? You're always kind of been like the self-made guy. Like you don't take the trumpet lessons, you know. You might read books about magic to learn stuff, but you're not, you know, apprenticing under somebody. What is that about you? Why is that part of who you are? Do you have any idea? Well, is that part of being free? It is part of being free, I think. I think also I'm okay with making a fool of myself. I mean, not that you want to make a fool of yourself, but a lot of people, I think the fear of failure stops them from trying. And I'm okay with failure. And I understand it's part of the process of learning. And so, in fact, when I really fail, I mean, I've tried to sit in with bands before and it's bombed. It's pretty horrible. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, boy, I'll tell you, nothing like bombing horribly to give you some motivation to practice a little harder, huh? <laughs> yeah, it's like the other day when we went to a... He was playing at a wedding that he took me along to and uh, a second line from the wedding. And you, when the, when the bride and groom came out of the courthouse, you tried, <laughs> you tried to play the wedding song, but then you didn't know the wedding song. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I YouTubed it the day before. I was like, how's this going? And I played through it once. I was like, oh, I got this. <laughs> but then at that moment, I'm like, wait, how's this going again? Yep, I screwed it up good. Where do you think you get that notion, though, where for you, failure is just fine? I'm not sure if I can answer that question, but perhaps part of it, I think actually a big part of it is this. The first time I took those huge chances and this started learning and learning and learning was when I became a magician. Well, that worked out. So it made me think that, well, I can just do this with anything. It, you know, it gave me enough confidence mm -hmm. to think, well, I want to learn to to do whatever, I'll just do it. So, yeah, maybe that's where it came from. Is there anything that you're afraid of? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm sort of afraid that Donald Trump's going to start nuclear war on the <laughs> Korean Peninsula. I mean, you know, but I mean, there's certainly things I'm afraid of. Yeah. So it's not that you're just like super ballsy and nothing terrifies you. It's more like... You have a general theory about life that things are going to work out for you. Yes. Yeah, it's not that I'm so brave. I don't, I don't think that's that. But yeah, I, I, I've been lucky. And 
it seems to be working out so far, so I guess I'll just keep doing it sort of mentality. Mm -hmm. And I am lucky, but I always believe that it's better to be lucky than good. <laughs> what do you mean by that? Uh, you know what? Uh, it's Somebody could practice so hard their whole life and it never work out for them, but some people just are are idiots and happen to walk into the wrong room and, well, ba-bam, you're president, you know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I see. Yeah, yeah, I get what you're saying. All right, so my final question, and then we will end, is um, so I'm going to go away from New Orleans, and I'm going to remember my time here and think about whether or not I want to come back. Is there anything in particular that you hope I remember from your vantage point about like either the way people live down here or your life or whatever it is that uh, you hope I carry with me? Well, I don't know if I hope that you carry something because each person has a different recipe for happiness and only you can find that, that recipe that's going to work for you. But it is true that New Orleans is like no place anywhere. You know, and I've, I've sampled a lot of places, you know, I've, Travel all over Europe and Latin America and a little in Asia and Australia and, and there's no place like New Orleans. The a little bit it has a flavor of Latin America in the sense that even though maybe people are poor uh, and and there's hard times, they just embrace the hard times with celebrating life, and I'm enamored with that sort of embracing of life so whether you come back to new orleans or not i think this is a great lesson to really embrace life to yeah life is challenging but it it's not about what has happened it's about what we do next i believe well thank you so much for talking to me it was my pleasure see you in a moment when the microphone is turned off <laughs> <laughs> and until next time this is the Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Talk to you next week. Bye. My thanks to the Dapper Dandies for supplying some of the music for the new New Orleans opening of the show. And big thanks to our new intern, Estrella Gomez, for all of her hard work. Be sure to visit her blog at lacasablaga.com. And remember, take action if you love the show. Tell a friend, write a review, write a blog post, or give us a donation. And we'll talk to you next week. Bye.